showed you what kind of week I had this week. So last week, Mark was speaking and he talked about radical relationship. He used a passage in John 5 that they've started to read as a background and th this passage about how intimate and radical the relationship is between Jesus and his father. And commenting on this, Mark said, Jesus says the love in our relationship is so strong, that's the relationship that Jesus and God the Father share, is so strong and so fundamental that not only does God give life, but in this kind of intimacy, I too am free to give life. Abundant and refreshing and free new life is mine to give, not because it is required of me, but because I love the life that God and I share, and I love to give life. Loving God and loving others is the foundation of this radical relationship, and the foundation for such a radical result. And this same radical relationship that Jesus and the Father share, that Meg, you, you, were, you were praying about it so beautifully this morning, this is offered to us. We can be in the same radical relationship that Jesus and the Father share. God loves us radically. He died that we might live. He is the literal example of Paul's own definition of radical relationship that we've been looking at in our series in 1 Corinthians. Seek not your own good, but that of your neighbors. That is radical relationship. Imagine what it would look like if we all lived like that. Seeking others' good, not ours. God puts us first. This is what God did. He didn't seek his own good. He died that we might live. And so when we respond in love to his love, we enter into radical relationship with him, which leads to radical relationship with others, loving others as he loves us. And I believe this parable of the minus is also about radical relationship, even though it certainly doesn't read like that at first. So what we have to do is we have to change our perspective a little to dive into this parable. See, consider this. Which line is longer? Now, many of us have probably been through this test, so it doesn't surprise us, but both lines are exactly the same size. What happens is the circles provide perspective, and as we get that perspective, we're misled from that perspective to think one of the lines is longer. This does the same thing. Which tree is bigger? Well, actually, the trees are the exact same size, but the converging lines create perspective for us, and so we interpret it in a way that maybe isn't quite there. Perspective is a powerful thing that we should all be aware of because it dominates our understanding of things and our interpretation of things, sometimes when we don't even realize it. Our perspective on life's events is developed through our culture, it's developed through our schooling, it's developed through our personal and corporate histories, where we live, who we live with, what we read, what we watch, what we listen to, how we engage, all of that develops our perspective. Perspective's not always bad, but it's not always good. It is important to understand, though, how powerful it is. And be willing to, at certain times, acknowledge that our perspectives may be holding us back from more authentic understanding. And this is incredibly true when it comes to biblical interpretation. Kenneth Bailey writes, All interpretations of Scripture need to be tentatively final. They have to be final in the sense that obedience cannot wait for the disciple to read yet more, one more technical article in biblical studies. I love that. 
You know, Jesus said, love your enemy. We need to do that before we really understand how and why and what. We just need to start practicing and obey. At the same time, all efforts in biblical interpretation are flawed. Our interpretations of Scripture, therefore, must never be closed to correction and revision. And I think this parable is a perfect example of just how much influence perspective can have on our interpretation of Scripture. See, here in the West, we can easily miss the heart of this parable because we have deeply developed perspectives based on capitalism. And that perspective has turned this into a simple economic parable. A successful use or not successful use of the spiritual gifts that God gives us. We're all about the bottom line in the West. Right? And so as a result, this story has become nothing more than a bookkeeper understanding of God. That continues to keep us trapped in transactional Christianity, afraid of a terrifying God who's constantly balancing our accounts. When instead we should be living in the freedom of being the sole desire of a loving God who wants to be in radical relationship with us. So what I want to do today is let's just consider some background that can help change our perspective as we approach this parable. And then over the next couple Sundays we'll dive into it deeper and see if we can't unshackle this from some of our long-held conclusions that have been greatly influenced by Western biased perspective. So Luke himself should help us right away because he tells us why Jesus told this parable. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. All right? That's a big key to what this parable is about. The people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So they're in Jericho at the home of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. This was the final stop on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus had just said some very powerful things to Zacchaeus about the kingdom of God. He said, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that what was lost. And it had everyone all excited about the end times and the overthrow of the Roman government. And the, the beginning of the earthly rule of Jesus Christ. This is what had everyone all worked up. See, remember, they were headed to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So at its core, at its very basic understanding, Passover is a celebration to remember the liberation of the Hebrew people from Egypt, right? That's Passover at its core. So in their minds, they're thinking, well, this is a perfect moment for another revolution to overthrow Rome, the new Egypt. All right? And they're, remember, the disciples had no interest in understanding Jesus' death that was coming as a real meaning of what it means to be Christ, as the real power that saves the world. They were convinced instead that their understanding of the Christ was correct. And their understanding of the Christ at this point was that he was God's chosen one for ushering in a very real kingdom that was going to overthrow Rome, etc., etc. After all, salvation had come to Jericho this day, to Zacchaeus, to a very evil man. And they were convinced it was going to come to all of Israel and especially to Christ's chosen followers. At the very same time frame, Matthew tells us that Jesus was even clearer on what was happening. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Okay? So, Jesus being very clear, this is what's going to happen, but they wanted no part of it. 
they, they just ignored it. They can't wrap their heads around it. Their perspective keeps them from understanding it. They think kingdom means one thing, and Jesus is here to establish the kingdom that they think he is going to establish. Okay? And what they do, instead of listening to him, they sort of latch on to this very powerful term. In Matthew, he says the Son of Man, and in our text, he said it too. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, and he said the Son of Man will be betrayed. So, the Son of Man is a complicated term with many different meanings. In Christianity today, it has many different meanings. Scholars argue about it all the time, and especially back then. But within this context, and with their current perspective, his hearers would clearly have thought of it as a reference to that eschatological person who was going to come at the end of the world and judge it, right? They were familiar with it from their prophet Daniel. In my vision at night, I looked, and therefore, there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. We're familiar with it, both from Daniel and from our book of Revelation. It talks about the son of man. So they're sitting, listening to Jesus, talk about the son of man in Jericho, right before Passover, and they're thinking, well, this is the perfect time for the son of man to come and do his thing, which is destroy the world. Right? Okay. So Jesus tells this parable to confront this misconception. So that's the beginning of why this parable is being taught, to confront this misconception that the Messiah was going to use human-looking power and justice to overthrow Rome. That's the first reason he tells this parable. The second reason is to challenge their understanding, and ultimately our understanding, of who Jesus really is to challenge our faith in who Jesus really is and to challenge our response to who Jesus really is. Do we or don't we enter into radical relationship with him? For that is really at the heart of this parable, a radical relationship that God is looking for with us. So, Jesus starts the parable. He said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Okay, a little more background, History 101, and this will really help shift our perspective away from a capitalistic reading of this parable into maybe what really was going on. Okay? During the days of the Roman Empire, there were these type of vassal kings throughout the empire. Herod was one of them. Herod had started as sort of a ruler of Judea, and sometimes around 30 to 40 BC, or actually 40 to 30 BC, he traveled to Rome to ask Augustus to make him king, which Augustus did over all of Judea. And this was important for two reasons. Number one, only Augustus could make someone king, and number two, this solidified Herod as a friend of the most powerful man on earth, okay? Which just, Herod took that and ran with it. Now, after he died, his sons became rulers of different parts of the kingdom, okay? Archelaus was one of his sons, and after he got part of his dad's kingdom, he too went off to Rome to ask Augustus to be made king. Augustus denied the request. In fact, Augustus ended up banishing Archelaus altogether, okay? Now, two more interesting pieces of history that are really important to giving us perspective. Number one, when Archelaus went to Rome, a large delegation of Jews followed him to argue against him 
and to convince Augustus not to let him be king over them. How did Jesus start this story that he told? He said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Very important to catch that. Second little bit of history. When Archelaus was ruling, his palace was in Jericho, the very city Jesus is right now telling this parable. So these people understand where the parable is going. They have perspective. They lived in a time of leaders seeking to be made king. All right? So that shifts perspective. And maybe already that's helping everyone start to think, oh, I get what Jesus might be getting at. Imagine that you are living in the time of Archelaus. Okay? And you're one of his servants. And he comes up to you and he gives you a bunch of money. And he says, I'm going off to Rome because I want to be made king, and I'm going to come back. But here's some money, and while I'm gone, I want you to set up a business. Down in the center square of Jericho, I don't know, so find Italian wines, cheeses, impulse. Call it Royal A's Bistro, and let everybody know you're the proprietor. Well, before we start calling realtors and distributors, we need to sit down and think about the risk we're about to make. And it has nothing to do with money. It's not our money. He gave us money. Here's what we're about to do. We are going to completely align ourselves with our cables. And we're going to let everybody know. We are going to sell people on him and his good. And his goods that he's selling. And we're going to do this in a city where not everyone likes the guy. Some people even hate the guy. And there is no guarantee he is coming back as king. There's no guarantee he's coming back at all. We just have his word for it. What happens if he doesn't come back? And this isn't America today. All right? And if you're a multi-multi-millionaire today and you give a few million dollars to the presidential candidate and he loses, ah, what? You don't get favors for the next four years from the administration. That's it. This is then and there, and this even happens in many places in the world today. When you support an existing regime, and that regime goes away, you're running for your life. You might get killed. I mean, look what's going on in the world right now. Countries get destabilized and by outside influence, and all of a sudden, genocide is happening. So maybe... It doesn't make sense to start a business. Maybe it makes a lot more sense to take that money, throw it in the mattress, and wait and see what happens. Right? When they ask you, who do you support? I don't know. I don't know anything about the candidates. Or maybe you even deny that you knew the guy in the first place until the rooster crows in the distance. Besides, if he wins, you still have his money and you can try to appease him. There you go. Don't be mad at me. Perspective. It's very important. Perspective. It's powerful. It's wonderful. This is a great, it's an amazing parable. Next week we're going to keep pushing into it. And hopefully we're going to discover that deep within it, it's all about radical relationships.
living into divine love. Sure, at the end of it, there is judgment language, but I, I don't think that judgment is what we think that judgment is. And we'll talk about that when we get there. God loves us. He came to reveal that love. His death proves he loves us. And now he wants one thing for us, from us, to love him back. For us to live into radical relationship with him. For us to believe he loves us. And stop trying to appease him. Because he doesn't need to be appeased. Do we believe in a God of love? Do we believe God loves us? Before we answer that, of course we do. Let me ask it this way. Do we believe that love is freely given? Because we celebrate it? We use it? We give it? We share it? We spread it around? Do we live in radical relationship with others? Or not? I think if we believe in one way love, that's radical. We probably celebrate it, use it, give it, share it. Or do we believe God's love comes with conditions? And we hide it under our mattress, afraid it will, he will demand it back with interest. These are the questions I think this parable is asking. We'll dive into it more next week. In the meantime, Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I'm trying to do that. And I think we all should.